Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome to Coast View, the show that every single day celebrates the men and women who are making coastal Mississippi such a great place to live, work, and play. I want to thank you for joining us here on Super Talk Mississippi uh, Gulf Coast, and of course, uh, here on Coast View, we we put the show up there on social media or your favorite podcast or on YouTube. People can see it; they can watch it on on Sun on uh, on Super Talk TV. Of course, you can listen here on one hundred three point one. But uh, but I really appreciate you joining us. I, I did a I did a post the other day that essentially said that when I looked at engagement at Supertalk, I mentioned I, on a show, and I don't know how many days in a row this is now, but the last time I mentioned it last week, it was sixty seven days in a row of straight straight enga- you know growth and engagement. And it, at uh, one point, we had fifty over fifty nine thousand impressions of our show and uh, um, and that's just the Coast View Facebook page. That's not the Super Talk Mississippi Facebook page, the Super Talk Gulf Coast Facebook page, YouTube, all these podcast platforms. And of course it doesn't count radio as well. But the fact is we're honey- hitting on a lot of cylinders. We're engaging the community in very important ways. Uh, celebrating the people that make this such a great place to live, work, and play. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you joining us here. I talk a lot about journalism. How can I not talk about journalism? First of all, I'm a former publisher. Um, But I see and learned, and I have, maybe it's part of my DNA, it certainly is deep in my soul, that journalism, good journalism, journalism with integrity, is a force for change. It's the foundation of democracy, whether you're talking about locally in your community, the region that you live in, the nation. It's a force for change. It's about, to me, the way I've described it is the best possible weapon for solving problems. And uh, and journalism is that important. So I'm going to talk more about journalism as we go forward. And um, I wanted to share one quote with you, and then we'll go to our guest. Uh, this is from Henry Green- Grunwald. If you don't know who Henry Greenwald was, he's a, he was an Australian-born American journalist. He was a diplomat for America and Australia, for a matter of fact. And he was the former managing editor of Time Magazine. And so when he when he said this, he knows exactly what he was talking about. And I want you to listen carefully to what this says. Journalism can never be silent. That is its greatest virtue and its greatest fault. It must speak and speak immediately while the echoes of wonder, the claims of triumph, and the signs of horror are still in the air. Man. It's journalism is really important, and we're going to talk about that here today, about the changing journalistic landscape and so much more with my friend who's been here on Coast View before, Jim Asher. He's now retired, but he's an investigative uh, journalist. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning editor. He has a, a heck of a, of a bio that I shared the last time we talked, but I've invited him back, and we're going to spend the whole hour together. How you doing, Jim? Excellent. Excellent. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
It's good to see you. Listen, I really enjoyed our time together, and I'll share one thing that I shared in our last conversation. What what I what I refer to, what Jim refers to, is this guiding philosophy. The more you the more you look closely, the more you find a bigger truth. You know, good journalism is expensive, isn't it, Jim? It is. It is. It also it also takes a. Uh, um, it, it takes a it takes an air of independence to do it, even when you have the resources behind it. And I guess that's the that's the trick of being a good journalist, which is to deploy whatever resources you've been given and blessed with to act on behalf of the people to yeah. outline the facts as they are, not as you hope they might be or you wish they might be. You know what? What is uh? You know, there's a there's a great great path to begin to talk about the importance of that independence. And you played on a really big stage in Washington, a very significant stage as a head of the Washington Bureau for McClatchy. And you've been involved in in investigative efforts. Again, you've won Pulitzer's. You've uh, you've uh, you've been you've done some coverage of the Trump administration, and you've you know, drawn some conclusions about what it was like to be in media during that time. And so, I want to get into all of that. There's really nothing off the table in our conversations today, but I think a really good place to start is we we see because of the rise in social media, we see in the debates around Twitter, we see and the bias that's coming out of, out of especially television and cable news operations, uh, especially in D.C. But what we, uh, what we should covet is what you were part of, and that is the creation of independent journalism in D.C. And uh, you did it in covering the war, both in the Bush and the, in the Obama administration. And uh, you have a sense of loss as, as it relates to looking back at your time in Washington and how we've lost some of that. Let's start with, let's not talk about what we've lost. Let's talk about the, the role that independent journalism plays in D.C. and your specific experience around that. Sure. Well, the most important thing we've lost is, is resources. Uh, in 2004, um, there were 71,000 journalists in the country that are now half that. So there's been a gigantic seepage of the, uh, of the ability to devote resources to news, to devote resources to unearthing what is being hidden. Remember, everybody in power wants a perfect journalist uh, to do a perfect job telling the best story they can about them. And that's that's promotion, that's public relations, that's not journalism. So you're always confronted with the, the need to go deeper than what they tell you, or you're just not telling the truth to people. So when you have, when you have a, as I did, a, a bureau of 70 people, you know, I could devote 20% of that to going deep on stories as well as covering the stuff that just happens. And, um, when you've when you've lost that, and that becomes thirty people, and that's barely enough to cover what happens every day, you just you just are lost in the woods. Well, Jim, Jim, so, looking back there, let's let's talk for a second about that 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 staff of seventy people. Give people an idea, specifically as it relates to the war. Give people an idea of how dispersed your team was around the world. Yeah. 
Well, the uh, the Washington Bureau, as a legacy of Knight Ritter, which was an extraordinary organization that ran great newspapers all across the country. Including used to own the Sun-Herald, I might add. That's how I know Jim. That's right. And uh, the the intent of that organization was to create an international operation. So they had bureaus all across Europe and in Africa and South America and the Middle East and Asia. And uh, it was it was a very robust organization. Uh, when McClatchy bought it in 2006, they maintained that, uh, that uh, imprint across the globe. Um, and in particular, because the war had started, so there was a very keen interest on the part of Americans to know what was happening to their children as they went off to fight. So that, that then, there, then of course, the organization uh, McClatchy and Knight Ritter owned dozens of papers across the country, which was also a funnel for information that could be moved around the world and around through uh, through the websites that we all created. Um, so it was it was a very uh, thorough sort of uh, investment in journalism, and it was and it was across the globe. It was really quite remarkable. And, and Jim, one one thing again, you can't help you can't help but have this conversation. I had the opportunity, as you know, to co-lead the strategic planning effort for Knight Ritter. And as part of that plan, that future plan, this was before McClatchy came into the picture, as part of that plan was the reality that we weren't just an, uh, uh, a collection of newspapers in America, but that we had created sort of a global voice for this organization. And we needed to amplify that. We needed to not only, as of course, as we were beginning to feel, I mean, the Internet was becoming part of our lives um, the, in fact, uh, the interesting thing is the final report out for the strategic planning effort was literally the week that Katrina hit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've been involved in this multiple month process and wasn't there to hand the plan to Tony Ritter. Ironically, t- Tony Ritter was in my office the day after Katrina. But and he said, you know, you don't have to be in San Jose this week. That's what he said to me. <laughs> uh, of course, uh, I didn't. But the reality was, though, is that there was a strong belief that that part of that part of the company, the, the work that was coming out of the Washington Bureau was unbelievably important to the future of Knight Ritter. Now, it, now let's, let's kind of freeze that for a second and look at what happened. What happened is that Washington Post and the New York Times, there are others, but those in particular, became sort of global sensations for, for covering news around the world. And one of the reasons that they've been able to survive in the digital f- framework is, and as ad dollars continue to decline, is that they were able to build a subscriber base from literally all over the world. It was one. It's one of the reasons why they've been able to maintain sort of some financial success in spite of losing all of that advertising. We'll continue this part of the conversation. We we'll come out on the other side with Pulitzer Prize winning Jim Asher. We'll see you after this. Listen live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. 
His love for the coast is why he's here. It's Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I have my friend, investigative reporter, Pulitzer Prize winning writer, editor, uh, Jim Asher, who used to lead the Washington Bureau for Knight Ritter, the company that used to own the Sun-Herald. And we were, I always refer to this, I was thinking during the break, this is lamenting with a purpose. It's because the, the lamenting we do now is uh, sort of um, sort of mirrors the timeline of the problems that happen for newspapers and really mirrors the problem that traditional media began to happen because of the digital tsunami. But remember these days, I was I was referring to uh, a strategic planning effort that I co-led in 2005 for Knight Ritter. And uh, the plan really, really detailed lots of things, the importance of the Washington Bureau and the work that we were doing globally. One of the points it made in there, incidentally, was that the phone would become sort of the center of our world. And we, had, we, we were able to see from a technological point of view that we were beginning to figure out how to get massive amounts of data through all these servers and into your phones. And we were already, and that was 2005, already beginning to see evidence that somebody's going to figure this out. Remember, though, Steve Jobs didn't introduce the iPhone until 2007, okay? McClatchy buys the Sun-Herald in 2006. You mentioned, you know, Jim mentioned a second ago when we went over to McClatchy, became the McClatchy News Bureau. They didn't immediately change the size of the team because war was going on and lots of things were happening. But what happened is that McClatchy, McClatchy, at the time McClatchy bought Nate Ritter, I was surprised at the premium it was willing to pay because the plan that we had just developed said that the newspaper industry was going to have some big-time challenges going forward, and we better prepare for that. And uh, so what they did is they leveraged the company, billions of dollars in debt for uh, a price, 65 67 comes to mind. It was a very high price, and uh, and had, had to go forward with this incredible amount of debt. And then the bottom starts to fall out in 2006. 2007, the smartphone gets introduced, and then after that, it was exponential after that because we began to realize that everyone's delivery mechanism, either them as their own reporter to the world because of social media, or in terms of how they read and get news, is all going to take place on that smartphone, and that tsunami continued to happen. Well, during that time, the Washington Post and the New York Times were doubling down on their global capabilities and realizing that that was going to be their competitive advantage. And had McClatchy kept the Washington Bureau the way that it was and positioned it sort of as a brand within the, the, the cumulative brand of all of these newspapers, it is possible. And I'm not, I'm not saying it could have absolutely been done, but it's certainly possible that they could have built a paid subscriber base that was comparable to the New York Times and the Washington Post, but they chose not to do that because of the debt load that was on them, and it became death by a thousand cuts, and it was hard to watch, wasn't it, Jim? It was, and I agree with you. I I did an analysis for uh, McClatchy about the uh, the digital use of our website and Washington, where we were consolidating all our foreign and national news and all the stuff we did in the Bureau. And uh, um, we had three million visitors a month. And this was with no promotion. This was just based on sort of word of mouth. And 40% of that um, traffic was related just to foreign coverage. So there were people were re- reading our foreign coverage 
again, without any promotion, without any reinvestment, you know, sort of being a, uh, a bootstraps kind of foreign operation. And uh, if you can if you can generate that kind of traffic, you can capitalize on the Internet. And the the fundamental failing, I thought, about the decision to revert to a local perspective, which is what uh, McClatch did, is that the Internet is useless for a local newspaper because the, tr the potential um, traffic is limited by the geography of the place you cover. So if if you have a metropolitan area of 300,000 people and you've got penetration uh, of 50 percent, you've got 100,000 people who potentially will read your news outfit. So and, and that's just not what brought success to the Times and to the Post because they were in the millions. Yeah, you had to have you think about, I mean, newspapers during the heyday. We were we were the boss hog in most of the communities we did business in. We had over fifty percent of the ad share in in the in the markets that we did business in. We had incredible profits, and um, but once that started to go away, you know the the cost associated with producing a newspaper became incredibly important really fast, and therefore that's where you that's where you headed. And one of the one of the great things about working for Advanced Condi Nass and for the new houses was that we. You know, they said, we're not going to do death by a thousand cuts. We're going to strategically realign our company so that we can survive in the digital world that's going to be here quicker than we know it. And it was painful. And it was tough. People people who watched what I was up to in New Orleans and what, what, what Advance was up to in general said, you know, how can you do it? And nah, nah, nah. And everybody, you know, they, they, wanted, they wanted to keep their, their fingers on the printed newspaper. But now they look back on those times and they say, wow. And they look at the kind of companies that Advanced County Nass was able to build, digital companies, standalone digital companies that are hiring news resources. They actually proved that you can do it. It's going to be a smaller company before it's all over with. But the death by a thousand cuts that most newspaper companies were going through without sort of a strategic you know, guiding light inside of them that they ended up coming, you know, the Sun Herald from 50 uh, reporters when I was, when I left there, a little over 50 in 2009 to, you know, five, six, seven reporters today. Uh, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. And now you, it makes you wonder how do they, how do they now flip the switch toward a digital future, having not built significant, significant digital capacity, especially on the advertising side of the company. So that's kind of, you know, this, this evolution, I think it probably happened a lot faster than most people realize, but if we would have made some smart moves early on, we might have been able to. And I always just say might because I'm not someone who's, you know, it's, it's not, there's no certainty in any of this. We might have, given at least the experiences of the Washington Post and New York Times, we might have been able to actually keep our heads above water. Well, I, I would substitute the word might to, uh, it was a potential. We had the potential to do it. Yeah. We had been smart about it, but we weren't. Well, Jim, you, you know, one of the, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Was the, the, the sort of aggravated all of that um, is is how social media has so transformed the collection of news and the the stuff that gets republished. The New York Times just last week had a story about the 25 top tweets in the world. <laughs> okay, there you go. You know. If you watch any kind of uh, TV TV news, 
you're hearing pretty regularly something went viral today. Mm-hmm. Going to report about it. Well, that's not that's not uh, reporting. <laughs> no, just a a. Uh, I'm not sure what it is, but it's not journalism, and it ain't reporting. <laughs> but one of the things, okay, again, reporting. And journalism, for the most part, is an expensive proposition. And newspapers, because they were successful financially, always had in every single market the most number of reporting resources. It was such a critical part. That local news element was such a critical part of uh, keeping the democracy viable locally. And and people used it as a way of staying informed about the important issues. Certainly, we saw the role the printed newspaper played after Hurricane Katrina here in coastal Mississippi. And uh, I mean, what a what a moment that was, and how proud we were as as leaders of our company to sort of watch that, and and watch the reporters and the team work together that ultimately led to a Pulitzer Prize for the for the Sun Herald. But um, also, also saw how the community was so responsive to the interest that we were showing as journalists. And yes, letting them the news that they needed to survive that terrible storm. I can uh, I can remind people who didn't hear our last conversation that Jim actually was here after Hurricane Katrina and got to see it with his own eyes. And what I what I often say about that is it was a proud moment to really appreciate the role that newspapers played to help keep democracy viable because there were all these decisions people were having to make. Do I build? Do I rebuild? You know, what do I do? How do I how do I get through this? And the and the and the and we were sort of the the arbiter. We were in the middle of all these conversations, having these these you know moderating incredibly important conversations between insurance companies and the general public and FEMA and the government in general. It was uh, it was something to behold, wasn't it, Jim? It was one of my one of my lasting recollections of that was how um, the insurance companies were sort of pulling the wool over people's eyes. If you got if you got flooded, it's you didn't get coverage because you had storm insurance, and if you got blown away, you didn't have coverage because you needed flood insurance. And it wasn't until journalists actually said, "Hey, you got to stop that insurance people," that the government responded and said, "Okay, you're going to cover everybody." And, and you know what's interesting? It took way too long, <laughs> way too long for that case to make it through the court system. But uh, I, you know, I handed to the Sun Herald. They they really stayed focused on it, you know, all the way. They still focus on it even today. Hey, when we come back, you heard Jim say that there were over seventy thousand journalists at one time in America. And today, there's maybe half of them. Uh, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because I've done some research of my own recently. So, so a lot of those resources are no longer in newspapers or other traditional media. They're actually nonprofit organizations, and. There's a lack of there's a lack of uh, transparency as it relates to these nonprofit news organizations. Some are incredibly viable, incredible. Some are not. And I want to talk a little bit about that when we come back. We'll see you after this break. Subscribe for free to the Coast View Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I want to, first of all, thank you for hanging in there with us. Uh, we're having sort of a nerdy conversation about journalism, but... 
You know, while it may be nerdy, it's really important to you. And my goal is to sort of communicate it to you, non-journalists, in a way that you can understand it. So you can see this this tsunami that started. Uh, it was happening long before the, the smartphone was, was introduced by Steve Jobs in 2007. But certainly since then, it has really changed the world. Social media has come to bear in the way that it has. And Twitter is playing such a big part. And all these social media companies are playing on a global stage. And meanwhile, newspapers continue to lose resources and have very significant challenges. Now, I have had de- detailed conversations with my friend Alberto Ibarguen, the former publisher of El Nuevo Herald in Miami Herald that you know, who is the president of the Knight Foundation, uh, about the enormous hundreds of millions of dollars of investments they made across this country in local journalism. Because he said that, you know, you, there's so much noise on the national stage, there's really no way to cut through that, at, you know, in terms of a role the Knight Foundation can play in that. Not to say that they're, they're not having conversations about it, not to say they're not still investing in news operations that, that are involved in that level, but they have hundreds of millions of dollars they've invested in local journalism. And um, and so I've really, really been pleased in seeing that because they see such a, a strong sense of why we must have good, viable local journalism taking place in communities across America. And and I'm so, so happy to have Alberto as a friend and have been associated with the Knight Foundation along the way. But one of the things that I have seen, Jim, and I want to get your thoughts about it, is the what we're seeing with nonprofit news organizations around the country. I've seen some of this in Mississippi, for a matter of fact that they are funded by, some are funded by foundations, some are funded by individuals. Oftentimes, if you look at their funding sources, you really don't get a list of who all the major funders are. That's really not typically disclosed. But what I've seen is that that if usually in those kinds of organizations, if you find the funder, and you find sort of what their political bent is, you're going to find a tie between some of the journalism that they're practicing and the philosophical, political philosophical beliefs of their funders. I don't care which side. It could be to the right or to the left. Mm-hmm. They, they pose themselves as viable news organizations. But, and, and, but they don't disclose who all their major funders are. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and I, one day I'm going to do a whole show about this, but I happen to know some of the funders here in Mississippi and beyond, actually, in Alabama and the work that I was doing in Louisiana. Um, you know, I have, uh, I've had some experience around this, and I see that as a problem. One of the other things that's happening is some of these nonprofits are using traditional newspapers as a delivery mechanism. And what's it for, for? And the reason why is because local newspaper companies have lost a lot of resources. But so they're having to sort of set their editorial integrity aside if they have knowledge of where the funders are coming from, and if they're watching the coverage, they have to have question marks in their mind about are these folks? And I hate to use this word, but but I'll I'm going to define it so that people can really appreciate that I don't say this lightly. Stooges is one of the words that comes to mind. The definition of a stooge is this, a person who serves to merely support or assist others, okay? And then shill is another word that we've all heard before. Two definitions. One is from uh, Collins Dictionary. If you refer to someone as a shill, you mean that they are paid to sell something or to participate in an activity in order to persuade others to participate. 
And then Wikipedia is a person who publicly helps or gives credibility to a person or organization without disclosing that they have a close relationship with that said person or organization. This is a growing problem in journalism, in my view. But do you have a view about it? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the funding mechanism for nonprofits is, has completely changed the landscape of how they ought to react to it. You know, most of the nonprofits are relatively small. They're, they don't have a, a big staff. Some of them do, but most of them don't. So when they accept money, it's their, it's their lifeblood. If they don't take the money, they don't exist. And, mo- and most of the, the funders for these organizations have strings attached to the cash. You cannot take it unless you're going to do the journalism that they're paying for. So if, if you're uh, a legit funder and you say, okay, give me coverage about health care in Texas, and you give them coverage about health care in Texas, that's one thing. But if you're a political partisan, and you say, give me coverage about X, Y, and Z, and then you don't tell anybody about it, you've, you've corrupted it. And, and you've corrupted your organization. And of course, because money is such a dangerous substance, you know, particularly when it comes to integrity, the more money you get, the more likely you are to be influenced by that money. And Nonprofits that are are out for the cash and not for anything else, they're not going to be good stewards of the public trust. They're going to be good stewards of the person who's giving up the cash. Well, take take any state, any state, because these nonprofit scenarios that I speak to are happening across America. You, you did you you name me? You, we don't have to name the organization, but you name me one that you knew of in Texas, right? Is that is that where that was? So this is a trend across America. But let's say, you know, you name the state. I'm not necessarily just talking about Mississippi. But let's say one organization is funded by a longtime, big-time Democrat who doesn't like the fact that in this particular state, Republicans have become sort of in control. So this person doesn't like the governor or the philosophies of the governor and the news organization that he funds is going to do everything in their power to make the governor look as bad as he can look. Now, this is true in any state where this potential scenario exists. And then over here, you have someone who is a is a conservative funder who's funding a nonprofit organization who also likes the governor and says, you know, the governor's got to make some tough decisions, so I'm going to give the governor cover in those decisions, and this is what I want this news organization to do. In both of those scenarios, it's not good for journalism in the way that you and I are talking about it. It's not good, and it's a, it's a trend, and it's troubling. Right. Well, I actually was, uh, I worked for a nonprofit for a while after I left uh, McClatchy, it was called Injustice Watch, and it was, fo- it was focused on the criminal justice system out of Illinois, and it was based in Chicago. And I knew the people organizing it, and they're spectacular journalists. So they had all of the integrity that you're supposed to have. Um, they started their organization intending to be a, a big uh, national player uh, on the criminal justice front. What they found is that they had a hard time getting money. 
more most of their funders were in Chicago. So they changed the entire focus of what they hoped to do to be a very narrow Chicago-based organization looking at criminal justice issues within Chicago. They're doing a good job, you know, and they're not they're not biased particularly about what they're covering, but they 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 change their focus because of the money. You know, so if people with high integrity in journalism are going to change the focus because of the money, I can't imagine what happens with people who are partisan. Yes, yes, that's that's so true. And, um, you know, I'm going to continue to do my research and focus on it. And eventually I'm I'm probably going to write about it. I'm in a unique position because I'm independent and I have. You know, a pass as a as a publisher that I've been involved in significant strategy efforts to try to save our industry, and uh, this emergence of of biased nonprofits and their funders that are not always disclosed is a troubling trend to me, a very troubling trend. Okay, so you had the opportunity, I think probably during your time at the AP, is that correct, that you were involved in coverage around the Trump administration at a time when Trump was, every time he didn't like something that the media was doing, he made the, he said that the media was the enemy of the people. That was, as a publisher buddy, that was a troubling, troubling trend. And he would take the 10% that might have got it wrong and applied to the you know the 90% that were getting it right and putting it all 100% in that bucket and you watch that play out and you it had to well I don't I'm not going to guess how it made you feel but how did you deal with that what were your thoughts about that well I, I should say that my my time with the AP helping them with the Mueller investigation coverage was was relatively brief. I was there only about six months, and then they decided they needed they, they didn't need my help anymore, so we moved yeah. on. So most of my time as a journalist has been viewing the uh, coverage of Trump from afar. So I have a bunch of thoughts about it, and, and I think they're they're consistent with my longtime assessment of how journalism is supposed to work. Okay, so let's do this. We will talk about this notion of, you know, media is the enemy of the people notion that Trump put out there and hear Jim Asher's really unbiased view toward it. This is rare that you get an opportunity to hear from a Pulitzer Prize winning writer who is incredibly focused on being objective. Very objective. Okay, we'll see Jim Asher after this break. We'll see you shortly. Also, listen live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say, Alexa, open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. We're having a, just an incredible conversation about journalism, the changing face, the media landscape that's out there with my friend Jim Asher, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, editor and investigative reporter. In fact, when we went to break, we were talking about he actually spent some time working for the AP in Washington on the Mueller invest- investigation. And uh, whether he did that or not, just as a, as a former uh, bureau chief for the Washington Bureau from McClatchy and Nate Ritter, he's in a really good position to, to talk about sort of the, the 
anti-journalism ripple effect of Trump saying something like, uh, the media is the enemy of the people. So that's where we were. So why don't you pick it up from there? Okay. Well, actually, I would start even earlier than Trump and sort of how journalism enabled Trump to become president. In a way, um, the, the issues that Trump was raising in 2016 that were resonating among such a wide group of people across the country were the issues that got neglected by journalists. You know, the, the hollowing out of cities across the country, the fact that jobs weren't available, the fact that uh, education wasn't giving people the skills they needed, the things that, that sort of fueled the discontent around the country fueled it because journalists had fallen down on the job and had not actually been as diligent about reporting that kind of stuff, and particularly from a national point of view, where the myopia of the East Coast and the West Coast kept people from even crossing the threshold into places like Mississippi or to Missouri or to Texas or to places, so Oklahoma. Oklahoma probably has never been seriously reported about in any uh, East Coast uh, or But... um, so, so he was able to to plug into a discontent that fueled his successful election. Completely understandable from the perspective. What what he then did, which I think was what provoked this great struggle between him and journalism, was that he identified um, the press as the enemy and described fake news as being all of the news that he didn't like. And so that if, if, if there was journalism that said, um, you know, you didn't tell the truth yesterday, Mr. President, that would become fake news. And it was this gigantic tar, the tar brush that he used, but why brush, to tar the entire industry that provoked, I think, a relatively normal human response from all of the journalists, which is, don't screw with me, uh, Trump. We're going to get a little more aggressive. Now, to, to me, what happened is that in the old days, when you got aggressive, you fueled your journalism with facts. And what happened during his administration was that the industry basically collapsed and that there was much few, there were many fewer reporters. There was a lot more interest in being fast out the door because social media was driving the conversation so that there was there was less facts to back up what uh, journalists had a feeling was unfair about uh, this assessment by Trump. And, and in exchange for facts became sort of opinion journalism that is really uh, deepened the schism between the truthfulness of journalism and the fakeness of the partisan assessment of journalism. And that, that to me, is really a troubling problem. You know, if you, if you, CNN these days has now created a panel of people to talk about the news, this is a relatively new development in their 
life. They're putting a lot more conservative folks on, a lot more liberal folks on. It's it's designed to be combative. Yeah, and it's it's not it's it's all it's all partisan, you know, and the bulk of the bulk of the time devoted to journalism is spent on this kind of partisan conversation about what few facts are left for the public to know about. So, so Trump capitalized on this. He, he saw this as a way to demand loyalty among the people who support him, uh, uh, skew criticism, uh, blame the press for being nasty to him. And in many ways, we were doing it to ourselves. <laughs> we, we were doing it to ourselves. So what what's interesting, Jim, about that, that's a, such a fair and I believe accurate assessment that there's enough blame to go around. It was like sort of the whirlwind of the moment. Everyone got caught up in the vortex, didn't they? They did. They did. And what's what's interesting is, is you, you contrast that to the pre-Iraq invasion where Knight Ritter was writing about um, how the, there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And the New York Times based on uh, leaks from the vice president, was writing about uh, how there were weapons of mass destruction. In the end, that that was resolved by the facts, not by the opinions of women. And, what, and that was another great example of amazing journalism. Hey, listen, Jim, gosh, I hate it. We're out of time. But we're going to come back because there's, there's a whole other chapter to this, and that is that this this whirlwind that you just talked about and how it manifested itself in the social media and how the algorithms worked against America from a democratic and society point of view. We can't I can't wait to have that conversation. We'll see you soon. Have a great day. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jim Asher today. And we'll see you tomorrow. Follow Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.